Welcome to the Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill. Today, we're doing a new release focus. So, Mr. Marcus Almighty, Mark Anthony K, is not here as a friend, a colleague, a co-host, a partner in crime. He is here as a working musician with a new album coming out. So, Mark, welcome to the show as a guest. I'm very honored to be here. It's always fun to be here as a guest. I'm always on the other side of the table. It's kind of fun to be on this end of it for once. Yeah, and this time your preparation for the show required recording an album, writing, recording, um, and working with other people. So Mark's um, musical project is called Project Gemini, and you're releasing your fifth album, which is absolutely incredible, the amount of music that you've put out since 2016, 2017. You've just had, I'm not going to call it an assembly line, you've been prolific with your musical projects, not just Project Gemini, uh, but your collective, your Dark Monarchy, and some of your bonus Christmas stuff that you've been doing. But you're doing book two of your In the Year 3073 series, um, which is going to be released digitally on November the 7th. Your physical orders are beginning on November the 1st. Um, And just a quick question about um, physical shipments. What do you anticipate your time frame is going to be to start shipping physical product to people who order? Well, um, according to my person at Train Records, who does all the, you know, pressing and the printing and all that of my stuff, um, he's saying that CDs right now are actually getting turned around rather quickly. He's thinking that I should be able to easily or comfortably get my CDs given to me before Christmas time. So if all goes well, then maybe at the start of December, maybe mid-December, I'll I'll have everything already here. And maybe people will get their stuff before Christmas. Hey, what a Christmas present, eh? That would be a great Christmas present. So in the year 3073 is a series, a, a saga, really, and this is the second volume. Could you just give everyone an overview of your project and why it's become a multi-album saga and why this second installation has arrived? Well, um, and originally I had an idea to do a sort of story concept record. Uh, originally, the idea was to, you know, do it on a record, maybe do it on two, right? But then as I realized that, you know, the story I had in mind required more music, more lyrics to kind of properly tell the story, it quickly went from a one album idea to now a three album idea. Um, I just felt that it wasn't fair to the listener to have to, you know, listen to all this on one album. There would have been so much of the story left out if I did it that way. And this way, I was better able to tell the story. And I think the story flows a lot better this way because I can tell more of it this way. Like, I always think of stories like uh, 2112, for example, that's on one side of one record, you know? And that's a very quickly told story and, and excellently done, I might add, you know, because, I mean, that was you know a classic. But I couldn't tell my story in that quick a length. So it went over three records or it will be going over three records. This is part two. And as I mentioned before, uh, I kind of like the idea of doing three records because a lot of my favorite movies that are in multiple parts are trilogy movies. For example, The Lord of the Rings. And for example, the original Star Wars, you know, you had Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. And just like Empire Strikes Back, the second part has a slightly more darker tinge to it. And it's sort of like a story where like in the Empire Strikes Back, the bad guys went in this one, the bad guys are kind of in control in this one. Right. So, you know, moving on from book one which uh, was released in 2019. What was the first song that you wrote for this album? And were any of these created, any of these new songs uh, kind of created or have their roots firmly in that book one before you decided to make it a trilogy? Um, 
Well, um, are you asking which song I wrote for this album first, or in general, the first record? For, for this book two album, what was the first, yeah. uh, you know, song, and did it have any, you know, roots in the the book one? Uh, actually, nothing from book one, and there are leftover songs because when I look in my folder, I have like fourteen songs, and out of that, I used six for book one. For reasons because I thought that some of them were not up to snuff. I didn't like where they were going. And then, uh, you know, I just took the ones that I thought were the strongest and used it for this. Now, unlike my other records, I usually wrote the music first and then put the lyrics to it. Book one and book two lyrics were written beforehand. And I wrote the music to the lyrics, which is a slightly backwards approach for me. And, uh, but it worked better this way because then I knew what I wanted to sing. I knew what kind of a music, what kind of music I wanted for these lyrics. And the first song that I actually wrote for this album, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it was "The Back Streets of Paradise" was the first song that I actually wrote in here, which was the third song on the record, and the one that has David Donnelly guesting on bass guitar. Uh, but after that, after I wrote that song and I realized that that was going to be that song, like the, the part of the story, I went back and started writing the music in sequence. So I went back, did the introduction, which was in the dark. Then I did Sacred Sons. I already had uh, Backstreets of Paradise. And then I went downward accordingly. The Great Lie, Getaway, Mastermind, and then the instrumental last, which came in pretty late in the the writing, I was already thinking that I was going to be done and start thinking about mixing. And then I realized, you know what, I still need another song. And I went back and did that instrumental. And it didn't take very long. And I'm very happy with the result of that one. Very cool. How much of this had you skeletoned out as part of the overall genesis of the idea prior to ever starting on the project? You know, once you decide that it's a trilogy, I expect you decide that each block has to have a purpose, a beginning, an end, and a, a part of the story. So how much of that have you mapped out, and how much evolves as you create, as you write, and it takes you in whatever direction the threads go? That's an excellent question, um, because sometimes people assume that you know you have the story all written, it's just a matter of recording the album. Uh, book one, I wrote you know, at that time when I decided to make the record. But when I was doing the recording and I realized that I wasn't going to leave it at one record, I sort of sat down and I have a couple of these kind of like huge binders. And because uh, I do everything old school. Nothing is in the computer. Everything is in books. You'll find like tons and tons of, you know, double ring binders and stuff like that behind me filled with all kinds of notes and scribbled out lyrics and stuff like that. And uh, I decided, you know, like I said, about halfway through the first book that there was going to be more than one part. And at first I thought I was just going to be two parts. So I had already kind of forecasted by the time I was mixing book one, what the next story was going to be. And before I even got mixed book one, I had realized that this is not going to be enough to do two books. And I kind of already put aside the notion that there's going to be a book three. Now, there is none of book three skeletonized yet as far as the story. And I did that on purpose because as I finished this record and I mixed it now, you know, every time I listen to this record myself, I kind of hear things, you know, new things come to me, new ideas come to me. Uh, sometimes when I talk to people about it, when they first get to listen to it, like, you know, you had the chance to listen to it. And a, a couple of other people who are doing interviews as well got an advanced copy. So I like hearing their opinions and what they think of it. And sometimes that will, you know, spark ideas here and there. So I left purposefully book three kind of open for the writing still. So that's still to come. Yeah, I think that that's probably important to let the music guide you uh, and also your feelings. And, you know, as you live with it after the fact, because you're very involved in the process, you, you seem to and I'll just get away from my questions here for a, a second. You seem to enjoy the process of making an album and sharing with your followers where you are at. Uh, what I very, very much enjoy about your musical life is that you share with viewers what you're doing 
the instruments that you're doing, the techniques and um, performance elements that you're putting into this work so that we can actually follow along with you as you create. How important is that to you uh, to do engagement? Um, I think it's very important because I've always looked at it this way. Um, I'm a fan of music, as you know, like we all are. You are everybody that does the podcast with us. We're all lovers of music and we love knowing things about music. I mean, you write books about bands. I mean, come on, you're all about research and stuff like that. And one thing I've always loved is knowing about how records were made. That's one of the things that I've always loved as far back as being a teenager is, you know, how did this record get done? Where did they record it? You know, oh, they did these crazy things where they put an amp into a, a hallway of a recording studio and they got that reverb because of that. Like all these things fascinated me. And I thought to myself, I can't be the only one, obviously, that's like that, obviously. So I always approached it that, and I've always said this a lot of times before, as you know, that my supporters, I don't call them fans, supporters are extremely important to me, and I like treating them with respect. And so I want them involved. I want them to know what's going on, and I like keeping them involved. And I've heard many times from people who have messaged me and saying that they really enjoy reading the blogs and the logs that I put down about you know, today I went into the guitars. This is what happened. You know, oh, I took a new pedal out. I tried it. It didn't work. I took this pedal out. Oh, it worked really well. This guitar didn't work good, but this one did. You know, keeping people in the loop, I find was pretty handy. And another thing that people have been saying that they've enjoyed is now that I'm putting that video log up showing how I'm kind of doing the mixing element of it, showing like what I did as far as effects for the drums, how I mixed the bass guitar. And just recently I did one showing how I kind of did my rhythm guitar. So People are starting to give me feedback that they enjoy these sort of things, and that's what I like. I figure if I put this stuff out there, I'll get something back in return from them telling me either they like it or what they like to hear. And then, you know, this way it makes it easier for me to give back to the people that are supporting me with their hard-earned money things that will make it more enjoyable for them, like beside the music itself. And you certainly seem to enjoy the process because you're enthusiastic and, and seem to like sharing your experiences and your stories while you're doing so. So thank you for doing so. Um, how strict are you in writing a linear story? I mean, I'm sure in your musical experience, you've, you've listened to some concept albums that run the gamut uh, between a conceptual piece, an emotive piece, an atmospheric piece, and some piece that doesn't seem to fit in at all together. So how do you approach that story? Are you going for textures and tones, or are you very much tied to uh, progression point A to point B? Um, I think a little bit of both. I mean, I think for me, the most important thing is that a story has to make sense and has to be not difficult to follow. And I think a lot of the times, the music that's in there, like, you know, the sort of atmospheric parts or parts that are, you know, non-lyrical are just as important, I think, in telling the story. You know, you want to give a song a mood, like the beginning of Backstreet's of Paradise, there's like a, you know, a, a storm happening, there's rain, and there's like a crowd in there, clearly, you know, not in a good situation, you know, being corralled up by the sacred sons, you know, and you can kind of hear in their voice the kind of, you know, the horror that's going on in there. So those kind of things I think are important because, you know, when you tell the story and they read the lyrics, then you kind of go, okay, now I understand why they're all, you know, in horror at the beginning and they're all fearful. Now I understand why. And those are really important pieces. And I think that's something that sometimes is missing from, you know, stories that I hear from other bands that maybe either they didn't feel they had something sufficient to use to tell that part. But I think it's important to have it because, you know, it just tells the story better. And at the end of the day, you want people to enjoy not only the music, but the story that's written for it. When you get a musical idea, when something comes into your head, a sound, do your guitar speak to you? A particular instrument says, this is what I need. Yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, I, I totally understand that because, you know, you're doing a song, you're writing it, and then all of a sudden you hear something, <clears throat> excuse me, you hear something come into your head that you think will totally do that part justice. Like in the middle of Mastermind where it drops down and it goes to that single acoustic guitar that plays those little harmonics and stuff like that. I remember when I was writing it, I came to that part and there was no acoustic guitar at that part. 
I had just kind of dropped it down and it was just like a keyboard part that I had. Then I thought about it going, you know what? This would be more effective if I kind of brought it completely down to just a single guitar and doing it because at that point, you know, the commander guy's kind of looking around in this huge, you know, factory warehouse and seeing all these people in these sort of, you know, enclosed beds. And, you know, the horror of him looking around and seeing this, I kind of wanted to represent that with just that one guitar, you know, or that, that thing that you always hear people say that when you see something shocking that the whole world kind of stops all of a sudden. I wanted that guitar to be that kind of the whole world kind of stopped for a second bit for him. Right. Well, let's go track by track um, and just talk about all of the songs on this album. You can talk about some of the techniques and maybe instruments and, you know, just uh, where you're coming from as an artist on each one of these. In the Dark is a fascinating atmospheric introduction. It immediately reminded me of Def Leppard's Bringing on the Heartbreak because of sort of the acoustic guitar intro, but it collides with sort of uh, inspiration, obviously, I think, as a Canadian um, I, I'm going to raise Rush with you. You know, Farewell to Kings uh, kind of pops into my reference point when I'm listening to certain elements. You've got acoustics, effects. Uh, first of all, tell me about the guitar you used for this and the importance of setting the tone for the album with the first song. <clears throat> well, the first song is always important because it's the first thing people hear and it kind of sets the tone for where it's going to go. Uh, where uh, in the first record, I tried to kind of keep it kind of opt optimistic and kind of an upbeat kind of intro. This is a much more, you know, somber sort of, you know, not so happy sounding beginning. And acoustic guitar is always good for kind of representing that. But what I wanted to do differently this time is I wanted to combine the acoustic guitar with an electric. And I pulled out my nine, my 1999 Fender Strat, and it has a very nice option that I had put into it where I can split the humbucker that I have in there, and I can also put it out of phase too. So I combined an out of phase electric guitar with the acoustic guitar, and it gave it that kind of nice, kind of ultra cleanish kind of guitar sound, kind of like uh, John Petrucci does sometimes with his clean guitar stuff. And it's very Alex Lifeson influenced as well. You know, that kind of a ultra clean kind of sound. And a lot of keyboards in there. And the one thing that I think kind of surprised me that I put in there is there's sort of like a like a clarinet sound in there that's playing this little melody doo, 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 over top of this melody. And I thought to myself, wow, that's sort of like almost pompous prog. Like we're getting into like, you know, Genesis with the flute sort of idea. You know what I mean? So... I thought thought about it. I go, does it does it make sense to put it? And I go, you know what? I like it. It doesn't bother me. And I'm a person, honestly, that completely goes with his gut. If I feel that it's that it's good and it doesn't bother me, it's in. If I listen to something and it bothers me even the slightest, and I don't even know why it bothers me, then it's out. That's I just go with that instinct immediately. So um, I I really like that. And the one thing about the song that I was pleased about that I did was I took uh, a sort of different approach vocally. I tried to do a much more kind of lower toned voice in that. And of course, having uh, you know some more experience in recording vocals, I used this microphone here, this SM7, because it's a very good kind of broadcasting mic, but it's also a great vocal microphone, especially for close proximity sort of stuff, right? And it's exactly what I kind of wanted in that because now when people listen to this song first i kind of wanted to give them that idea of you know he's kind of talking to you like directly about what's going on you know what i mean and you know you're talking about a guy who wakes up in this darkened room has no idea how the heck he got in there you know and he's just kind of telling you what's going on and it's very brief the lyrics it's not a very long piece but i think it kind of gives you the idea that this is not going to start off very well no, it sets the tone very well. Um, and one thing I was very impressed by was your vocal phrasing on this. I mean, you're singing in a lower key, 
Um, was it a challenge for you to find the right tone and kind of phrasing to set the mood that you were looking for? Because you're usually not singing like that. And it's very striking to someone who's followed your previous four Project Gemini albums. Yeah, um, it, it definitely was um, a bit of a challenge, only because of the fact that I kind of envisioned something, but I wasn't exactly sure what it was. And it took a bit of experimenting. And this is where, you know, having your own studio becomes immensely, you know, important because instead of sitting there going, okay, I shouldn't be dicking around here for an hour trying to figure out how to sing this because it's, you know, $100 an hour. I don't have that concern. I can just do it as long as I want, even if it takes me three days to figure it out. The end result is I want to be happy with how it sounds. And it didn't take that long to figure it out because, you know, I always thought back to my training when I was a youngster, you know. At, this, at Studio A in Brampton when I was co-oping, you know, and they always told me, you know, proximity is important. You know, also, if you want to do a good, low-sounding voice, get in close and don't project as much. You know, just talk easily, you know, and it, the voice will come to you. And my father was a, a vocalist in a choir for a long time, and he was in the bass section of the choir. He had a very low voice. So... And he always used to tell me the same thing. He goes, low singing is all about being relaxed and just pushing the words out clearly. And when I remember him telling me that, then it all kind of came to me because I just remembered to kind of get myself in a comfortable position, make sure I have some nice warm tea for your throat, and then just, you know, get in and just sing it clearly. That's the main thing he said. He goes, make sure you sing it clearly because when you're not pushing as much, sometimes you can kind of uh, stumble over your words a bit, right? And it turned out fine. I really enjoyed it. And I, I did double it, too. So that also helped make it a little bit more fuller as well. Right. So this first piece, did you view it as a segue from the end of book one or opening a new leaf, a clean palace for book two? Yeah, it was definitely a clean palace. I envisioned it like this, like book one ended, you know, and here come the credits in the movie theater. And then this one, you know, you go into the theater, you go sit down, the lights go down. And all of a sudden, you know, the movie starts, there's this dark room and you see this guy kind of shuffling around the floor and he kind of looks around thinking, where the hell am I? And then all of a sudden it starts, you know, here, here in the dark and he starts telling you what's going on. That's how I kind of envisioned it. Right. Perfect. All right. Sacred Sons. This was the first single. You've already released it. Uh, it came out on October the 12th. It's available today on your Bandcamp website. You share the vocals with Joe, Joe Bailey. Mm-hmm. Um he seems to become a regular collaborator with you. You know, can you tell me about your decision to share the vocal on this song and why it became the first single for the album? Well, uh, Joe and I have become very good friends. Uh, he's a great musician. I really, really respect him as a musician. I mean, he's like a British version of me. You know, he does all his own records. You know, he mixes them, records them, masters everything, puts them out. And he's a great singer fantastic singer I, i've always loved that's the first thing i was always kind of drawn to him by was his singing i loved his tone of voice and the fact that he could play all these instruments as well was a complete added bonus to me um so in the last record i the reason why i brought joe in was because i wanted to have some separation in voices for the characters you know if i sang every character it would be kind of confusing sometimes right so joe represents the other characters in the story and in sacred sons he represents the sacred sons right so and i'm representing the commander who got you know captured by them so it really helped in telling the story because when he does when he sings his part you obviously know that he's representing that part of the story and i'm representing this part of it and it just really i thought helped make this song that much more dynamic that way and also i really like this song because when i stumbled upon that intro lick that that little guitar lead at the beginning i was like okay wait a minute it gave it kind of that epicness to it at the very beginning when you played that so right away i thought to myself okay this is perfect for the end opening of the album and when i talked to lee pomeroy who plays bass on this song i kind of told him you know this is going to be probably the opening track of the song and he he really liked it and you know that was a big thing for me because here's a guy who's played with steve hackett 
He's in ELO right now. He was in It Bites. He was in so many bands that were, you know, just big. I mean, the fact that he was with Steve Hackett alone was like, you know, you know, I love Genesis, you know. So, and you know, he 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 he's a guy who plays bass left-handed and strung upside down. Like that alone was like, how do you play? How you play like that? Oh, he's one you of know? them, is he? Yeah, yeah, he's one of them. And you know, he messaged me after he got the song, and he goes, "Hey, uh, Mark, what kind of bass do you want me to use?" I go, "Oh, I have a, I can pick." And he goes, "I have tons of basses." I go, "Do you have a Rickenbacker?" He goes, "Of course I do." So he did it on a Rickenbacker, and he used, you know, an Ampeg bass. So he gave me an amp tone and a DI tone. And the thing that made me kind of, you know, smile even further is that we, as we all know, he also was the bass player in ARW, Anderson Raven Wakeman, which is the offshoot Yes band, right? And he told me that the that the patch that he used for the amp side of things was the one that he used for ARW, so for the Yes material. So that right there again was like, oh, this is too good to be true, you know? And when he sent me back the tracks, I, I, I listened to it easily about six times in a row, just just the bass playing, because he is so melodic, so fluid. He's all over the bass without it being too like, you know, it's not like some pompous, like, you know, guitar for the practicing musician song or something like that, you know? It's well thought out and it just added so much character to that song to me by the time it was all done and i had all the pieces together it just didn't make any sense not to put it out as the first single no it's absolutely fabulous so you know it must be wonderful also to have these you know somewhat fanboy moments and it's perfect <laughs> perfectly stated uh which is always good it doesn't dominate it accompanies your story and your music very very well so you know th thanks for sharing with us you know the story about lee and his involvement on that uh moving on the back streets of paradise you know what writing a story in a song is one thing telling a story in that song is a completely different thing uh your lyrics are evoking lots of images and scenes and scenes which the music complements perfectly how do you approach the complexity of marrying all these elements together along with performing all of the instruments and vocals on the song except on the bass on this particular song um well one thing that really helped with this album which i did a lot more than i did in book one is i really really tried to think of this album because i was doing it in sequence at this point now as being somebody in a theater watching the movie what would i want to see next like where did i where would i think the story's going and, then, and when I wrote it, I kind of thought of it in that manner that, you know, okay, this happened. He captured, he had his big, you know, vocal, you know, debate with the sacred sons, thought, told him what he thought about, blah, blah, blah. They disappear, they go away, and he's left in there in the room. And then that part of the story comes where this woman comes in who's just kind of, you know, going around in the room, cleaning things up, you know, and then she disappears. She comes back later, leaves some food for him, disappears. And, she's, and they're always kind of wondering, though, know, who is this woman, you know? And then she's, you know, she's one of those characters. She's not supposed to talk with the prisoners kind of thing, right? And then next thing you know, they finally get in contact with her. Like, and she's quietly, like, non unassumingly starts talking to them very quietly, saying, you know, I shouldn't be talking with you, blah, 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 blah. Of course, this is going to be all laid out in more detail in the lyrics that I'll give with the uh, album. But in a nutshell... He ends up talking to her, finds out that she was a person who was captured, like many people were by the Sacred Sons, and the Backstreets of Paradise kind of tells her story of what happened, you know, how she got caught, you know, and and it's just told in that song. Very neat. Uh, on this one, you've also got uh, another external collaborator on bass, David Donnelly who, like Lee, delivers a perfectly stated bass line throughout. What made him the perfect fit for this song? And can you tell me about the collaborative process with David? This is very interesting because, as you know, I've become really good friends with David. Uh, thanks to you, actually. You were the one who introduced us uh, to the first time. And uh, I thank you a lot for that because you've become a really, really solid, good friend and uh, great musician. Absolutely brilliant um 
the thing with him is that when I first talked to him about doing music together, he appeared on book one in uh, the song uh, Children Children of the Future or Children... I forget. See, I can't even remember my own thoughts. Uh, the, the Children of Hope. That's it. And uh, when I sent him that song, at first he was surprised because it was sort of a ballady song. And with his background of, you know, playing with Glenn, uh, Glenn Matlock and you know, having the kind of David Bowie connection with Holy Holy and stuff like that. He was expected that I would give him something a little bit more rock and rollish, and I didn't, but it turned out excellent. This time around, I wanted to give him something that had a little bit more meat on the bone, so to speak, for him to play. And I know that his reaction when I first sent it to him, he was very happy and excited that he had a more, you know, technical song to work on and, uh, you know, lengthier, longer, and he was very excited about it. And the excitement shows, I think, because when he sent me back his tracks, he sent me back a sort of very rocking, heavy, borderline distorted bass within the, for like the chorus and the uh, middle sections and stuff like that. And in the verses, he gave me a really nice, cleaner, compressed bass sound that, you know, would accent his note playing a lot better in the verses. It's perfectly played. I can't stress this enough. His playing in this is, was so rec- like well done on this. It really complemented the guitar playing in this. And, you know, David, I didn't need to tell him anything as far as guiding him. I mean, he was so, you know, so on point for what I wanted. I was extremely happy about it. But David's that kind of guy. Which one of these things I always love about people like David is that he sent it over and when I told him I loved it, he was like, are you sure, mate? Are you sure there's not one note here at one minute and 20 seconds that's a little too quick? I'm like, David, it's perfect. I love it. Even if it was a millisecond too quick or whatever, I wouldn't change anything that you played. Are you sure? It's like, David, it's perfect. You know, and he was he's very, very wanting to make you happy as well. The person that he's doing the work with, you know, and I and I appreciate that because, you know, sometimes I'm sure there are people out there that are like, okay, you know what, here, I'll record it, here you go, and now I'm on to my next thing. You know what I mean? So, not David. He's very attention to detail, and he just did a great job on the bass. There's a lot of sonic textures on this song, in particular, you know, throughout, that come through. How do you avoid the pitfalls of textures becoming clutter? Because it's perfectly balanced. Do you ever have to go back and listen and say, I think you said earlier, no, that doesn't belong there. But uh, how much of a, a risk is it when you're doing something that requires all these additional elements to help tell a story? Um, one of the things I learned early on when I was doing my co-oping and working at studios is when you're recording a record, better to have too many things and remove it than to not have enough things and wish that you did it. So I've always kind of went in with that approach that you know what, I'll record this, I'll record that. Okay, I'll put an organ here. Oh, I'll put this here. I'll put these effects here. I'll put in a Mellotron here or something like that. And then at one point you might be thinking, oh, this is a little too much. Is it going to work? And then you think to yourself, okay, you know what, let's just leave it. When I go to mix, we'll see then. And if there is too much, that's why they have the mute button. Or that's why you have a volume fader. You know, you can adjust it. And I've always said, though, it's better to have too many things and just do that than to say, shit, I should have did that Mellotron thing. Now I'm really wishing I did it. You know what I mean? I've always took it from that approach. And again, uh, the whole thing with mixing is extremely important. And one of the things that I was, uh, you know, like happy that I remembered is one of my favorite albums as far as mixing and textures is uh, Steely Dan's Asia. It's such a great record as far as mixing goes, and all their records are sonically incredible. And one thing that I've always remembered that those guys said is that your panning knob is your best friend. And what they mean by that is, you know, not everything has to be dead center. Not everything has to be either extreme right or left. And there's a lot of mixers out there, even big ones. I remember there's a guy named Chris Lord Algae who does like a lot of huge bands mixes. And his thing is that it's either center or left and right. And I was always kind of like, that's sort of an odd way to mix. Because for me, I like their way of mixing where they say, if you have an orchestra, they don't all sit in the middle. 
and they don't all sit left and right. Some of them sit up here, some of them sit down here, and that's how I approach my mixing. So when I have like keyboards, the piano might be here in the mix, and the, uh, the Hammond organ might be down here. And when you do that, you would be surprised how much that helps the mixing because they're not taking up the same space, right? You're giving them all their space in there. And when you give everybody their own room in there, then everybody can be hear, heard very clearly. Yeah, there's a lot of space within the sonic spectrum to have yeah. all the pieces come together. Let's move on to the great lie. And uh, this is more of my review of the song rather than a question, so I'll get to my question at the end. Uh, but my thoughts on this were that I really, really dug the synths and the keyboard intro on this. Um, but the transition into the electric se uh, section is just sublime. Just the way that you combine stylistically two different things so seamlessly is absolutely beautiful. Joe plays bass and sings yeah. most of the verses, but it's really a song with very strong lyrics and a very tight arrangement. Um, and this is this is my comment. Throughout this whole work, there's a maturity of thought and execution coming across through your work. And with all that material that you've put out over the past four years in particular, how do you perceive yourself now? And are you going back and listening to your older works um, for inspiration or uninspiration as the case might be at times um i think that i'm you know growing as a writer i think i'm getting better as a writer i think i'm starting to understand myself better as a writer i mean things are i've always heard, i've always believed the saying that if you stop learning then the journey's kind of done i think that you can never stop learning on an instrument you know, whether it's guitar or singing. I mean, every day you could learn something new. The, 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 it's a never-ending learning experience, I find, music is. And vocally, especially, this is something that I haven't done a lot of before Project Gemini. So for me, it's been a fantastic experience learning about myself as a singer. And I think that as each record has gone, I've gotten stronger and stronger at it and better and better at it. Um, yeah, sometimes I do go back and listen to some of my other records. Why? Because sometimes when I, you know, put up little posts on my pages saying, you know, hey guys, you know, I just, just I was listening to this record the other day. I'm just curious, what do you, what is your, what's your favorite Project Gemini record? Just, just throw it out there. And lots of people were saying that they loved An Ordinary Day. You know, I love that record. I love that record. You know, I love that you put those kind of, you know, wood blocks at the beginning of the Ordinary Day, and you have you use those chimes. They like, they, they just, they mentioned little things that they like about it. Like some people say that it's, it was the more progressive of the records, that a, a brand new day was much more guitar oriented. You know what I mean? And when I hear these things, I sometimes, you know, it sometimes gets registered up here and it comes into play in my songs later, right? So I, I do listen back to my music and I think that I'm getting better. And, you know, it may be cliche to say, but I'm, I'm still thinking that every record that I'm gonna do will be a step forward in my development well there's certainly one is with that arrangement and you know the attention to detail that seems to inhabit this you know tell us about the the song and where it fits into the story the great lie well the great lie is an important part of the story even though it's not a very long song in, in comparison to the other ones um this is the part of the story where lieutenant woodworth which is the science officer that accompanied the commander uh, they both got captured. She got separated from him. And sometimes, as does happen when you separate two people, uh, they could get wrongly influenced by somebody. And at this point, she gets influenced by the professor of the Sacred Sons, like their high commander guy, into thinking that what they're doing was correct. And she starts to buy into it. That, yeah, you know what? Maybe what they're doing isn't so wrong. Maybe I was wrong to think that they, what they did was incorrect. Hence the great lie, right? Uh, and I, I feel that it's a strong message story-wise because, you know, you always think that, you know, you, you can't turn people, you can't corrupt them, especially 
the military always seems to have this kind of, you know, thing about them that, you know, they're very strong people, strong-willed. But I wanted to show that there's sort of a, you know, that, that sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? They're sort of, uh, they're, they're human, let's just put it this way. The, it, can, it could happen to, to them as well, that they could be persuaded to think otherwise. And she does get, you know, that does happen to her in this story. Uh, Joe plays fantastically on this song. The bass playing is really good. And actually, this is one of the songs that I actually asked him at the last minute to do. I had not had any bass done on it. And I was thinking about doing it myself. But then I thought about it and go, you know what? I'm going to ask Joe to do it. And I think it was the right move because he does some really fantastic bass playing on this. And I mean, he has such a distinctive way of playing that I really think that it was what it needed for this song. And his singing is great. I mean, I gave him an example of the, the lyrics and how I sang the verses. And much to my really, you know, much to my surprise, and I was really surprised and happy about this, he didn't follow what I gave him. He did his own kind of thing to it, and it turned out amazingly well, much better than I would have had it. So this is why I like working with Joe, because he's not afraid now to kind of input his kind of stamp into it and it really turned out well and you know like i said is this in this part of the story this is the kind of crucial part of the story because now you know the commander's convinced that you know she won't turn on him she's loyal to him and she won't you know buy into their story but as we see she starts to believe in what they're you know selling nice it's always good to get someone else's input kind of into your music because it does provide that separate perspective. One of the things I like about a band like Marillion is on their albums, you get some very, very deep progressive stuff with technical nuance and details, structures, time changes, tunings and all that, which are really fascinating musically. But then you get poppy as hell, catchy songs, which takes us nicely to Getaway, which to me was simply <laughs> catchy as hell and infectiously so. Um, tell us about Getaway. Ah, get away. Um, this is one of the early songs written uh, as far as because it's like the fourth or fifth song in the album I, I knew that I needed this point to be something very cinematic you know very like you know attention grabbing because as the kind of title you know suggests getaway you know like this is the point where something drastic is going to happen. Then basically the commander goes now, finds her, and says, Okay, I've seen enough of this place. Something bad's going to happen to us. We better get the hell out of here. That's basically the lyrics in a nutshell. Of course, there's more to it, right? But that's basically what it's about. When I first wrote the music to it, I kind of thought to myself, Okay, the chorus part is pretty simple musically. There's nothing too overly complicated into it. It's very catchy. It's very upbeat. It's moving at a good pace, you know. Vocally, I got to do something as well in there. And I remember the very first time I sang that line in there, I was like, yeah, this, this works. And the minute I put those uh, harmonized parts in there with it, I was like, okay. This really sounds like borderline, almost like progressive pop. You know what I mean? Because it's so, it's so catchy. There, I was like, am I stepping over a line here with that? You know, but I couldn't help it. You know, and that you know, this might seem egotistical to say this, but I really liked. It. I thought it was very catchy. I had it running through my head for days after I had recorded it. That chorus. So yeah, myself, well, well, thank you. It had that effect on me. And uh, <laughs> come on, when we listen to bands like Marillion, is there anything wrong with Kaylee? Yeah, exactly. No. Exactly. Because you know yeah. that you can then have a garden party if you want something a little bit more prog, pure prog. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But that, but that's why that's what I, I have to agree 100 percent because when I think back to that, you know, Marillion is a perfect example of that. That I, I, when I think of bands like that. That's when I can kind of go back and say, okay, this kind of a chorus is a, is okay to have. You know what I mean? 
because if you, if a band like Marillion would do something something along those lines, then I could do it too. You know what I mean? And you know, music has to be catchy too. It doesn't have to always be, you know, technically over the top or too complicated to, to you know, you don't only you don't only want those people. You want people that like melodic music as well or who might like pop music as well. And do you want people you want all kinds of people to like your music? So I kind of think that this song is sort of the one that will hook everybody, not just progressive people. Yeah, and Yes did it as well, of course. Yeah. They had some very pop songs throughout their catalog, but not your run-of-the-mill everyday pop either. They still had their influences, style, and taste presented, just yeah. in a and, slightly and, more upbeat manner. And just, sorry, just one more thing I wanted to bring up is that middle part where it drops down is that keyboard bit. I mean, you have like two bells, you know, you have wood blocks in there. I mean, this is not exactly your typical kind of pop song. I don't want to alarm people and think, wait, this is a pop song. No, it's not. It's But, you know, the chorus is very much of that sort of ultra melodic leaning. But that middle part is probably one of my one of my favorite parts on the record. I really love how that turned out. The, the synth lead line turned out really good. I was very happy I found that setting on the Gaia, my keyboard there. And I think the blocks added something to it as well. And there's like an accompanying lead guitar melody that's really mixed low underneath it. That kind of almost doubles the melody of the keyboard. I think that that was one of the more stronger parts of the song and probably one of the stronger parts in the record. I really enjoyed how that turned out. No, your enthusiasm about the song is very clear, Mark. So, again, congratulations on that one. I very much enjoyed it. Moving on into Mastermind. That is an epic. But 11 minutes long, how do you find that the components of a long song stay together rather than the split out into separate, uh, disparate songs? How does it remain unified to you when you approach these songs? Um, one of the things I find that help keep it unified is how the structure of the lyrics are. Because I find that if you do a, a song where it's like first pre-chorus, chorus, you have a middle part that's totally out to lunch and it goes off in a total different direction. And then you go into another different direction and then another direction and then you end it. Yeah, it seems not really form fitting that way, but because I wanted to return back to the verse and pre-chorus and chorus after that long middle section, I think that's what kind of kept it as one solid whole. Because when you get out of that long middle section, you come back to a section which people remember, like, oh yeah, okay, here we are, we're at the verse now. You know what I mean? It's not like this is a this is the eighth part in the song or the seventeenth part in the song, you know, like supper's ready. There's like so many different parts in that song, you know, you don't even know where the verses are and the chorus ends on that song, you know? So I wanted to keep that bit of it logical in there. And again, this song has Joe Bailey's fantastic bass playing on here. I mean, it has his first introduction of playing fretless bass in the middle section where it drops down and he did a great job on that, fantastic. And it's one of my favorite parts vocally on this record, especially because here again, we're at a, you know, important point in the story. You know, it's a it's now told to the commander that he ain't going anywhere. The lieutenant's being converted over to the sons, and he's going to be added to this mastermind, this huge hive of people that are powering parts of the planet with their combined mental strength that they have. They, you know, they put everybody into like a kind of coma, and they're just using their brain activity to work things in the planet. Again, all this will be explained in the liner notes for the story, so don't start going, what the hell is he talking about? It'll be explained. And because of that, you know, you have sort of now the vocal battle back and forth. Joe being the leader of the Sons and me being the commander and me saying, I'm not going to stand for this. I want out of here and I'm leaving. And then we'll kind of go, ha ha ha, you're not going anywhere. And then him kind of shooting back and saying, listen, if you guys are so full of peace and you don't want to harm people and you won't hurt people, I know you can't do anything to harm me. You have to let me go. 
And it's like, no, 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 we don't have to let you go. You're just going to be put to the hive with everybody else. Right? And that's where the whole thing kind of, you know, starts going back and forth. And the big ending part is the part that I love the best, where he says, you know, goodbye, my friends, it's time for you to go, which is a direct nod back to book one. Because if you listen to the beginning of the first song, the opening line is, uh, like in the chorus, it's like, welcome home, my friends. That's the first thing that he's saying in the chorus. And in here, at the end of this book, he's saying, it's time for you to go, my friend. So now it's kind of like, you know, you are a friend to a point to him, right? And, you know, now they're going to be put aside. And the, the last line of the, of the whole song is very important. You know, others know we're here. How he says that at the end of the song, the commander, you know, you won't get away with it because other people know that we're here. And just to let you know, Julian, because you don't have this on the record either, there is something that is being added into the record. There's just a voiceover part that happens in between the ending of this song and before the beginning of the instrumental, which is basically a character appears and announces his arrival. Let's just leave it at that, okay? And it's very important to the story and very important to that whole line where he says, you know, others know we're here, right? So it's, it's very important and it all ends this album sort of nicely with the instrumental at the end. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And uh, I'm a person who is a big fan of Rush's Aggressive Steel. So I like a song that has all these different, uh, you know, textual styles throughout. And you touched on the harmonics earlier. That acoustic section is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, can you tell me about the guitars and the techniques that you used in, you know, string type? What what were you strung with, and what was the guitar? Six or twelve, or or what? Um, the the actual solo guitar part uh, is a Yamaha six-string acoustic guitar. One of my favorite acoustic guitars I've ever had, ever. Uh, I love it. It's just uh, standard strings, bronze strings. Uh, and really, it's just a lot of use of harmonics and uh, almost kind of a tip to the hat of Steve Howe sort of in there. Like he's very much about that when he plays acoustic guitar. He does a lot of harmonic things. And with that, when it starts building back and as you start having the strings come in and stuff like that, there's also the addition of a 12 string electric guitar in there as well, which, is for, which I have my double neck guitar, which is behind me, which I use that. Um, but yeah, the acoustic guitar, and this is the other thing that people probably find sort of interesting, is that a lot of people, well, most people, mic the acoustic guitar and record it that way. I wanted a very, 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 very direct sounding guitar, so I used the direct plug-in and used the built-in pickup on it, which gave it a much more present sound so whenever i hit those harmonic notes it was like really really audible you know what i mean so i wanted to go that route i know that some people think that's blasphemy to do that but i just think that i wanted to go with the sound that i heard in my head and that's how i was able to achieve it so that's what i did well it provided a real wow moment so so thank you and congratulations on that because it really stood out. Uh, you, you've explained uh, the special feature that wasn't on my review copy, so I look forward to hearing how that ties together into the final piece on the album, The Answered Prayer. What's providing the organ-like underlying on that track? Uh, that is my Yamaha EX7, which has probably one of the better sounding Hammond organ patches that I've ever heard. I mean, so good in fact that I remember what kind of inspired me to use that is the Yes DVD Yes Live at the House of Blues there's a great shot of Igor Koreshev who was the keyboard player at that time for Yes who had two of these keyboards in his rig and every time they went to him whenever he played organ whether it was on Yours is No Disgrace or whatever he was at the Yamaha EX7 and I'm not surprised because there are so many great organ settings on this keyboard. I, I, I definitely wanted to use it in this song because Hammond organs, as we all know, can be used to great effect. Like, look at John Lord. I mean, come on. 
you know, his uh, his use of the organ is just incredible. And I kind of wanted to give it that sort of big sound because this is the song that we have Billy Sherwood playing bass on it from Yes. And I wanted him to play the instrumental because I know that he's a very good bass player technically, and he didn't disappoint as far as his bass playing went on here. And I told him it was instrumental. He was excited about that because he likes playing instrumental music. He does tons of it, as you probably know. He's done so many records, it's unbelievable. Um, but what he gave me back was just a great listening experience for me. He gave me one mono track of bass, and then he gave me this really interesting stereo track of his bass in stereo with this really crazy kind of chorusing sound a la Chris Squire, uh, Tempest Fugit, or you know what I mean? Like those kind of like really kind of chorus bass sounds. And it sounds so Chris Squire, it's unbelievable how it sounds. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, this is incredible. So I made sure I used that and the mono track in blending together those sounds. And I think it just turned out really good on, on headphones. It's just really great to listen to that bass playing. I mean, it, it, it turned out so well. I was so happy with that. And, and I was always kind of hoping that Billy would appear on the record. And, uh, you know, I, I was very happy that he did. Yeah, what do you get out of the mono? Is that where you can pick up kind of more of the string attack, the bucking, yeah. or, or certain frequencies that then enhances the kind of more, um, I, I don't want to say processed sound, but you, you know you know where I'm going with yeah. that. Yeah, ex exactly. And, and you're exactly hitting the nail on the head, because when you listen to that stereo sound, the processed one, the great example of it is when he goes to that middle part where he just goes doo boom when he hits like a note and lets it ring and when you listen to it we can really hear the chorusing effect on that and then he goes up high on the on the, the fretboard and does like this little doo 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 little note playing and that's where all the mono tracking comes into play because you can really pick out the notes then if it was just a stereo thing it might get lost and it might turn into like a woo woo woo, -woo kind of sound right but with it blended together, it's just the right amount of really cool effect and really clear bass playing. Yeah, definition. Um, so you've answered my question about Billy, but the guitars, there's a plethora of guitar textures across this. Uh, my notes say, you know, sick bass line, uh, you know, so that <laughs> that's a positive. But there's string scratches, there's all sorts of techniques. You really, I'm not going to say you threw the kitchen sink at it, but you put quite a lot of technical playing into this one track at the end. What's the importance of you delivering that kind of energy and stylistic ending to the album? Well, I mean, again, this is the ending of the record. Um, something very important is happening. As I kind of just mentioned, you know, somebody had appeared and it's an exciting moment. I wanted to capture that sort of excitement in this song. And, you know, instrumentals are things that I like to do as well. They're fun. You know, you don't have to worry about, you know, I can't go too overboard here because I'm going to be singing here. Or, you know, you can really ignore those things and just try to be, you know, melodic as you want or over the top as you want. And, you know, that's why I include like that kind of like, you know, almost uh, funky semi-clean guitar that like that would have never have did that in any other song except that because I thought that it was really kind of almost borderline humorous you know I could almost envision you know the commander guy doing like, like a happy dance to it because he, this guy this character has appeared he's that excited about it you know what I mean and uh, you know I love harmonized guitars you know I love Iron Maiden you know, I love bands that have like dual guitar attacks. So that's always kind of present in my instrumentals as well. So let's just put it this way. I tried to just make sure that I convinced, well, not convinced myself, but reminded myself that I am a guitar player first and that I've always loved playing guitar and I wanted to really show it on the instrumental. Well, congratulations, it really comes across. Let's you know, wrap up our discussion of the songs with uh, going back to my first question. And uh, that's kind of in your mind. Is this a segue now to book three, or are we full stop on book two? 
Oh no, it's it's book three is coming. Book three is definitely coming. Um, I've already kind of started, you know, some rough ideas of where it's going to go. I mean, I know how it's going to end, but how it's going to get to that point, how much more of the story, like how much I want to put into the story is now the question. You know what I mean? How does it get to the end? Because when you're at this point in the story, you know, there's going to be something major happening. Book three is how does the story end? Again, I refer you back to Return of the Jedi. I refer you back to Return of the King. You know, all of these things, There's it's a wrap-up of the story. And, you know, sometimes it may not end exactly as you think it's going to happen, but, you know, there is going to be an end. And that's the most important thing. I wanted it to kind of end on a note that, you know, you know book three is coming, you know the story is going to be ending, but you don't really have a clear idea of how it's going to end. Yeah, and that was that that was a very enjoyable, you know, musical exploration through your song. So thank you. I gave you a one-line review of the album after I'd listened to it, and people can read that on the Project Gemini Facebook. That's my blurb. That's my only review I'm doing for this because I get to speak to you and go through it, and I've told you the things that I've liked face to face, and you've explained your methodology, your reasoning, your creative process throughout. Is there anything else that you would like to add for people who've listened to our discussion today about your new album? Um, well, there's been a few questions asked, like, namely, is there going to be a vinyl release of this record? And the answer is yes, there is. Um, I was fortunate enough to be told by the people at Lacquer Channel, who I deal with, that they do have Lacquer acetates put aside because they knew I wanted to do vinyl in the future. So I'm very thankful for that because, as we all know, acetates may be more difficult to come across in the future until that sort of uh, catastrophe is dealt with. But, yeah, it's going to happen. The vinyl will be in the new year. And I will be putting up a poll again for voting of the color. So that seems to be a very popular thing amongst the supporters. So I'm curious to see what people are going to say this time around. Uh, other than that, um, a lot of my stuff, well, all of my stuff is on my Bandcamp site. If you want to check it out, uh, there's lots of stuff there that you can, you know, get and listen to. Uh, also, there's going to be a Christmas EP coming out in December that I'm doing right now. Just about done it, actually. Uh, four songs and, uh, one of them is going to actually have singing, believe it or not. A Christmas song that I'm going to sing. Can you believe it? Uh, and yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. And in January, we're going to be starting writing for Dark Monarchy number two record. So just to keep you kind of updated on what's going on, uh, that's what's going on in my world. And, uh, you know, in 2021, the story of in the year 3073 will come to its conclusion. Very cool, Mark. Well, you can find Mark on Facebook. Um, tell folks about your Facebook site and where where they can find you there. And if you can just give your address on uh, Bandcamp. And we'll uh, plug both of those into the description as well uh, for people who are not listening but are just watching. Well, the Facebook uh, groups themselves, uh, we have a Facebook uh group like Project Gemini, the official Project Gemini group page and there's also a fan page on there as well. I don't remember what the actual address is but it's simple enough if you just go into Facebook and do the search uh, button there and just put in Project Gemini you'll find both of them rather easily. Uh, the the Bandcamp thing is kind of simple too. It's just Project Gemini together like the way the, the uh, band name is spelt uh, dot Bandcamp Com. That's where you find all the music. If you want to listen to it or purchase it or download it or whatever you want to do with it, that's all there. And also, one thing I want to pitch to is uh, my YouTube channel. On there, you, I have updates on a more frequent basis than I actually thought I would be doing. It's almost now every week something's coming out, sometimes even two times a week. And uh, I'm, I'm up to like, you know, I think 100 and 16 or something like that uh, episodes of it and it's you know some of them are pretty lengthy uh, some of them are very detailed and some of them are not some of them are just more updates on things going on 
But if you really want to see what's going on or hear about what's going on, you need to go to the YouTube channel. And that's just basically the Project Gemini channel. That's all you need to look up. Just search Project Gemini and you'll find it immediately there. And especially if you're interested in getting in on the pre-orders of things, you want to get to this channel because I go into great detail about what you can get and what comes with the records when you order them. And make sure you like Mark's Facebook page and follow that so that you get to vote on the vinyl color because Mark empowers his followers, uh, which is very cool. Um, Mark Anthony K. Thank you very much for joining me today to talk about your music. Project Gemini's In The Year, 3073 Book 2, comes out digitally on November the 7th, and physical orders start on November the 1st. So all the links are below for where you can find further information to visit Mark directly. Thanks again, Mark. You're very welcome. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us, like us, or even leave us a review. You can find us and join the conversation on Facebook. <laughs>